Hi, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. Richard Dawkins and I go back a long way. We've had great times together. We've had many dialogues on stage. We've written things together. And we've even appeared in a movie together, uh, The Unbelievers, that followed us as we lectured around the world. And you might think, based on that, there's nothing new for us to talk about. And we often worry about that, but but in fact, we found that each time we have a dialogue on stage or uh, or uh, online, there are new and exciting things to talk about. We are surprised, and, and perhaps you'll be surprised. This year, we did two events on stage in England for Changing Minds and Changing Times, which was uh, uh, produced in part by uh, The Origins Project. One in London, one in Birmingham. And... Uh, we found them fascinating. They were surprising. That In London, I got to interview Richard about his interests and his recent book and, uh, and other things. And in Birmingham, for the very first time, Richard interviewed me uh, for his podcast and this podcast. And we've recorded them uh, and combined them together here for this uh, Origins Project podcast. And I hope you find it as fascinating and uh, entertaining as we found uh, doing them more. So... Uh, please enjoy these podcasts, these discussions, these two discussions with Richard Dawkins. You can watch them, as always, for, uh, with, for, without any commercial interruption, if you could be a paid subscriber to our Substack site, Critical Mass. And those subscription fees go to supporting the Origins Project Foundation, the nonprofit foundation that produces the podcast and our other public events. And I hope you'll consider supporting it. Otherwise, eventually it'll be released on YouTube. You can watch it on our YouTube channel, as always, or you can listen to it on any podcast site. No matter how you watch it or listen to it, I hope you enjoy these dialogues as much as I always enjoy my dialogues with Richard. Well, we've done a lot of double acts together, Lawrence, but this is the first time I've had the pleasure of interviewing you. Y- yes, it's, yeah, it's, I can't I'm wait. And I'm going to treat it, uh, with everybody's permission, as a kind of tutorial in physics. Okay. Um, because I hardly understood a word of what you said. Which <laughs> 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 is always my test case. Um, for example, I mean, when you said, this is ridiculous, this is absurd, and therefore... Yeah. Everything's absurd in 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 modern physics, isn't it? In, in 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 the same sense. I mean, yeah, you, you're you're right in the sense that you're absolutely right. Modern physics has taught uh, it, almost everything is absurd when it comes to conventional wisdom and common sense. It's taught us that common sense is not to be trusted. You have to go to the actual data. You have to go to the data and ask if common sense is consistent with the data, and you should be willing to. To accept, and it's, and I think as you probably said, it's it's not surprising that common sense doesn't work because common sense is evolutionarily based, and it it's based on the things that got us successfully reproducing for a million years, and not and not uh, on understanding the universe. And the biggest surprise is that that it somehow has led to a species that can. It's hugely surprising that it's led to a species that can. Um, and sometimes I can console myself with the thought you just said that, that after all, we evolved to uh, work out where the next meal is coming from and where the next member of the opposite sex and where the next water hole and, where the ne- yeah. and so on. And, and um, 
So it's not surprising that we cannot grasp the idea that um, uh, when a particle moves from one orbit to another, it doesn't pass through the intermediate stages, when, and when a particle goes through two, two slits at once and so on. Um, I love the, there's a cartoon in the New Yorker, you've probably seen it. It's in a, a veterinary um, waiting room, a vet's waiting room, and the nurse is there, and she's breaking some news to one of the people who's sitting there. There's another person with a dog with one of those lampshade things on, and she's saying to, to one man, about your cat, Mr. Schrodinger. <laughs> I have some good news and some bad news. <laughs> well, um, Schrodinger made up the cat fable as a demonstration of how ridiculous um, the interpretation of quantum theory is that um, it, well, in his terms, you, the, the cat is neither alive nor dead since you, until you open the box. And that's clearly absurd. And yet, it's one of the accepted, reputable interpretations of quantum theory. Um, another one is the uh, many worlds interpretation, where the, there, there are numerous billions of universes where the cat is alive and billions of universes where the cat is dead, which is, in, to my mind, slightly less absurd, actually. It's very uneconomical, but not totally absurd. Where do you stand on that? Or, or I suppose there's well, a third I school of thought, which is Feynman, who says, just shut up and calculate. Well, I, I, I side with Feynman to, to a great extent there. I, I don't come on the side of either. I think they're both misplaced. I do think you're right. The, if you had to pick one, the many worlds interpretation is more palatable or closer, a little bit closer to what actually is the case. But neither are the case. And in fact, quantum theory does not predict that, that the cat is both alive and dead. It predicts that an electron can be spinning this way and that way. But properly interpreted, quantum theory says the world is quantum mechanical, yet the world around us is classical. We aren't, you're, in, you're in that chair, you're not in that chair and in the audience at the same time. An electron could be, but you're not. So there's somehow, there's some, something happens when the world becomes classical. And if quantum mechanics is correct, then it should explain how the world becomes classical. And, and uh, one of my colleagues and professors first, and then a colleague and then friend, uh, who's now passed away, Sidney Coleman at Harvard, who was, interestingly enough, my, the smartest person in the department. At the time, the department had five Nobel laureates in it, but he was smarter than any of them, and also funnier. Uh, he pointed out that, the, that the, we get it exactly wrong. There should be no such discussion as the interpretation of quantum mechanics, because the world is quantum mechanical. So anytime you describe the real world in terms of some kludge, which is the classical world we yeah. experience, you're going to prove something that sounds nonsensical, like the many worlds interpretation. And in fact, what we should try and understand is the interpretation of classical mechanics. How, why, how is it that the world we see is the way it is when the real world is, is, is different? And he gave a great lecture, which I, which I talk about in the new book, and, and I, I really recommend you looking at it. You can see it online, um, called, the, called Quantum Mechanics in Your Face. But he, one of the things I didn't mention in the book, which I, which, which I think is lovely, is, is the realization. So quantum mechanics says many think, weird things should happen, but when we measure them, we measure something different. People often talk about it as the collapse of the wave function. There's no collapse of the wave function. It's just thinking about quantum mechanics correctly and measurement 
you realize how a classical observer will always measure classical things. And the example he uses is from a Tom Stoppard play where Ludwig Wittgenstein is, is standing on a corner in Cambridge and, and he's thinking and someone stops and says, what are you thinking about? He said, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that people, people say um, you know, that the Earth orbit doesn't orbit the sun. It just, the, 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 I mean, the sun doesn't orbit the Earth. The Earth orbits the sun. It just, it just looks like the, and, and, and someone says, yeah. And he says, well, I'm thinking about what would it look like if it was the other way around? Yeah. And of course, it would look exactly the same. And, yes. and, 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 and you, when you think about it, you, and he carefully shows that this, this classical kludge can result from a careful understanding of quantum mechanics. But people who get hung up on the many worlds or interpretations of quantum mechanics and write books about it to make themselves seem profound, it's totally misplaced in my idea, in my view. It's like saying the interpretation of general relativity in terms of Newton. Well, the results of general relativity in terms of Newton are absurd. Light doesn't go in in, 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 in bend in, in Newtonian mechanics, but if you try to interpret general relativity in terms of Newton, you'd have to come up with these weird kludges, but no one does it. I don't know, well, I know why they do it with quantum mechanics, because quantum mechanics is so strange that, that people, even at their heart, because in principle, we all have seen curved pieces of paper and curved things, so even if curved three-dimensional spaces are, are beyond our kin, we're used to the ideas, but quantum mechanics is completely beyond our perception, our experience, and therefore is innately not understandable. As Feynman said, if you think you understand it, you don't understand it. So it's not the case that you're perfectly safe playing Russian roulette because even if you shoot yourself in another world, you go on. <clears throat> uh, it, I would say it's, it's not, and, and, um, and I would say that um, um, since life is finite, in, in, then... Um, you know, it doesn't really matter, does it? <laughs> no. I mean, because even in the many, uh, the, the important thing about the many worlds interpretation is some people think that, that somehow those other worlds, if they, if they are the same as our world, you're not, you can't go between them. So you're dead if you shoot yourself in the head. It really doesn't matter what the, yeah, what's happening. That, yes, I, I didn't really mean that seriously. Yeah, but it's, it's, it, and it's precisely that reason that quantum mechanics with many complex, electrons and photons do strange things that we can measure in the laboratory, but only if we very carefully prepare them. We see quantum teleportation and entanglement and all this exotic stuff, but the reason people win Nobel Prizes for that is it's really hard to do the experiments because the minute you stop shield, you shielding these very carefully prepared states and allow them to interact with the world around them, all those weird quantum mechanical correlations disappear. And, and so that the weirdness of quantum mechanics is invisible to us, and, and uh, objects like you and, and, and Schrodinger's cat, the, 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 the challenge is to explain why cat, Schrodinger's cat isn't both alive and dead, and a proper understanding of measurement theory in quantum mechanics will tell you that, that it's a nice... It's a nice uh, so you, uh, you, do you wish you were an experimental physicist? Now that I'm older, yes. Um, when I was younger, well, see, it's, theoretical physics seems sexier. The people you heard of, Einstein, Feynman, you know, all of the, almost all of the great theorists, great physicists you heard about in, the, in most of the 20th century that I sort of idolized or at least made me want to be a scientist were all theorists, you know, sitting alone in a room discovering the universe, which is not how it happens at all. But in fact, um, 
it was only, and, and I, when I was an undergraduate, I actually did experimental physics, which is what convinced me I didn't want to be an experimental <laughs> yes. physicist. Okay. Not only did I, did I, did I, it was easy for me to destroy things. I nearly blinded myself with the laser once, but, um, but what, what, what really convinced me, and this is one of the reasons I hold them in such admiration, is that, is that I, w I worked for six months on, on a little thing to try and get one little part of an experiment to work. Six months on that one little thing, and yeah, I finally got that one little thing to work, but I'm a very impatient person, and, in, you know, and the idea of spending 10 or 20 years on an experiment which might reveal absolutely nothing was something that didn't appeal to me. But now, I certainly, as I became a physicist, my appreciation of experiment dramatically increased, actually, when I was a graduate student. I, I used to do mathematical physics when I started, very mathematical physics. And, um, and it, was a, it was a friend, of, now a friend of mine named Sheldon Glashow, who's a Nobel Prize winning physicist, who one day looked at me and said, there's formalism and there's physics, and you have to know how to tell the difference. And what, what he convinced me was, you always should ground yourself in observation. You should never be far away from what we can measure, or you're at risk of sort of intellectual masturbation, of, of, of sort of wandering off into a domain that has nothing to do with the real world. And, and that, that caused me to, almost all of my work, therefore, has in some ways been related to things we can measure. Not all of it, but much of it. And, and the other thing about experiment that I envy now is that... When you build something, it's real. You have something there. You have something to show for your work afterwards. Whereas ideas are so much more ephemeral. Um, and, and, and you can never really, I mean, ideas are often in the background anyway. You know, Einstein did, developed general relativity. It was a triumph. But David Hilbert, the mathematician, was that close to developing it. You know, I profiled what we wrote in 1995. There were other people thinking similar things. So, you never kind of feel like, it, it, with an experiment, you've done something, you've demonstrated something, you've really tapped into nature. It's terrifying if you're an experimental, if you're a theorist. It really is terrifying to think that some weird idea that you're writing down might actually describe the universe. Really let, let me raise another of the things that came up in your previous okay. talk when you said, um, even when um, the prediction is is fulfilled to the umpteenth decimal place, it's still not actually true. And I get that. But on the other hand, when you say in all science, I mean, well, my, I mean, Darwin's theory of natural selection is true. Uh, well, that's not just provisional. Well, that's an interesting well, question. Well, well, okay, no, maybe not quite that. But the fact that we are cousins to chimpanzees is simply true. Yeah, okay. There are scientific facts <coughs> that, that what we've measured, what we've measured is true. Okay, what we measured, you can't, you know, I mean, unless the measurement is wrong, and you can always test it and retest it. But when you measure something, you're dropping a ball, it's going to fall down, not up. No matter what we learn about quantum gravity, you let the ball go, a million years from now, it's not going to go up. It's always going to be described by Newton's laws, because our measurements have shown that in general. But, but it's not, but the question is, is it true over all times and spaces? And you could say with evolution that evolution is true but it's manifested in the long term, over long times. It's not, it doesn't necessarily describe 
accurately what's happening at every instant when a biological system is working. No, that's true. So, so that's what I mean. That's what I mean by universally true. And and you know, it's the challenge of evolution. The reason people don't buy it is that is that you need to understand long times, and it's something hard for people to accept that something as complex as the eye or DNA or RNA could actually yes. develop. Yeah. Well, let me persist in my role as the unintelligent layman trying okay. to... Um, <laughs> um, when you <coughs> we hear about um, um, Hubble showing that um, mm. the universe is expanding and then the mm. uh, metrics uh, extrapolating yeah. backwards, I get that extrapolating backwards makes sense, but why to a point? Why not to a sphere you know, the, the size of the Earth or the size of the solar system or something? Why, why a single point? Well, because the, the, if you take the theory seriously then um, the, that theory and many theories of physics are time reversal invariant. So if you can extrapolate forward, then, then you can always run the movie backwards. And if you take the theory to its logical conclusion, with gravity being attractive, if the, if the universe is always expanding, then at some point, if you work backwards, it's always contracting. And the extrapolation of that is to a single point. But you're absolutely right that we have no right to extrapolate the theory back to a single point because of what I said earlier. Ge we know general relativity breaks down as a theory. <clears throat> we know it describes the universe beautifully and galaxies beautifully, but we know, and, and this is a great gift, we know explicitly the scale at which general relativity stops making sense. It's called the Planck scale. We know, if quantum mechanics is true, that general relativity stops making sense at a very small scale. So you can't extrapolate back and do it with any confidence. It doesn't stop physicists from doing it. And many physicists do it, and, 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 and we generally, when you should take all of those things with a grain of salt, whether it's Roger Penrose or anyone else. If I sound naive, it's because I reckon I'm probably not alone. And, um, yeah, no, it's great. Um, and, and I know uh, we've had these discussions, um, but I also know that, well, um, anyway. I don't understand what's the difference between inflation and expansion. Oh, that's a good, that's a great question. And and again, you're probably right that you know I threw out the term. So, what Lemaitre showed really, Lemaitre and since then, is that general relativity doesn't allow for a static configuration of matter. And the answer is the same as Newton. Newton doesn't allow a static configuration of matter because gravity is universally attractive. So if you put a bunch of mass points down in Newtonian gravity they're always going to collapse together because they're always going to be attracted by gravity, okay? And more or less, what Lemaitre showed is the same thing is true in general relativity. If you have normal matter and radiation, it's more or less universally attractive, and therefore, the only way you could have a universe that's as old as ours, you know, if you started out with a static universe, it would have already collapsed by now. So the only possibility is to start it out expanding, and then it'll slow down, and maybe return back. If you throw a rock, it'll go. Um, I'm familiar with the idea that um, when the solar system condensed out of a yeah. ball, out of a lot of, yeah. lot of gas, gravity was attracted to little nuggets of, of matter that yeah. were forming, and they gradually grew and grew and grew on gravity, and they became planets. Yeah. And so that's gravity pulling things together yeah. and, making, uh, and making, in this case, planets or rocks or... Mm -hmm. Um, that's easy to understand, but contraction to a single 
point of infinitesimal size is utterly different from that. Oh, it is, except um, why, why don't we collapse right now? Why are we sitting in these chairs? Thankfully, that's a rhetorical question. I'm not going to make you answer it. But um, uh, the, uh, the, the answer is because of electricity and magnetism. Happily, gravity is the weakest force in nature, which is why we can ignore it for every experiment we do on Earth. It's, you know, the electric and magnetic forces that are holding this cable yes, up yes. Uh, yeah, are stopping yeah. it from going down. I get so, that. But so, so that stops the Earth from collapsing to a point. But if they weren't there, if gravity is universally attractive, there should be nothing that would stop it from keep on collapsing. And the great... But the sheer vo volume of matter that's there couldn't collapse to a point. Well, in fact, well, that's it. not necessarily true because, in fact, as far as we know, electrons have no volume. No, but protons and neutrons do. But they're but they but they're made of elementary particles called quarks, which in the in the canonical picture have no volume, and photons. So they would break up into their constituent particles if you crushed them small enough. Okay, so you've answered my question in a way that I find very surprising, but I'm rather glad of it. Um, because what you're saying is that all the matter in the universe, all the protons and neutrons, electrons you can mm. let, um, c could be collapsed into a point. And it's, all you're doing is you're crushing them and removing the space between them. Yeah, and I'm saying, but even, but it, you know, you don't have to go to that level of potential absurdity. You, we can go that. to a scale where we, under, where we think we understand the laws of physics. And in fact, I wrote a book called Adam, where we can, in, in our conventional picture, everything that is now in all 100 billion galaxies that are in our universe, and all the matter and radiation, at some time that we can define where the laws of physics still work, <clears throat> was contained in a region smaller than the size of an atom. I mean, that's unfathomable, but nothing stops it from happening. And there's nothing, there's no force that can, can ult ultimately stop that, for certain objects, there are. Gravity is weak enough. And that was, if you saw the movie Oppenheimer, it, one of the things Oppenheimer was famous for, well, among physicists, was the first realization that if you had a, a star that was big enough, that the, even the nuclear forces would not stop it collapsing into what later now we call a black hole. And that was, you know, it, and, and, and so, but there are only special circumstances. The sun, when it, when it stops having fuel, won't be a black hole because the nuclear forces are strong enough to, to hold the star together yeah, and electromagnetism yeah. is hard. <clears throat> but if you have a big enough mass, nothing can beat gravity. Big enough mass, and uh, yeah, so. Yeah, so uh, uh, just the sheer amount of matter, it, c crushing it into, 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 a, into... And here, if that didn't make you mad, upset or confused, let me try this. Um, it's even worse. Because as the matter gets crushed, it gets hotter and hotter. And actually, in that at primordial atom of Lemaitre, or, or the one I talked about in my, that book, the actual total amount of stuff is far more than the sum of everything we now see by a factors of a million, 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 million. Namely, almost all of the energy and, and stuff in that primordial atom is, has been later dissipated by the expansion because the universe has done work as it's expanding and it's lost energy. And so the universe now, with its mere 100 billion galaxies, if you want to add up the total energy of the observed universe in matter, it's a small fraction of the total energy that was contained in that primordial atom. It's m it was so much bigger than you could get rid of all the matter we now see in the universe and the amount of energy in that region would be almost the same.
It's really, it's really, the fact that we can even think of those things with a straight face is remarkable to me. And until the 1980s, no one did. I mean, the great change, and I, I got involved in that, was to, to think that with some seriousness, we could apply the physics we understand on fundamental scales to explain the universe on larger scales. It's the ultimate chutzpah and, and arrogance, but physicists are very arrogant, so it's okay. Okay, well, I, I had thought, and I think I'm now wrong, I had thought that there was something changed in the laws of physics itself that made it possible, but you're now telling me you literally can crush all the matter. Yeah, 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 and, but, okay. but, you, but when you get to a single point, we know the laws of physics must change, yeah, and okay. we know, we know, and uh, mm. uh, people like me, I think most scientists would say it doesn't collapse to a, a single point, that some new law of understanding yeah, okay. gravity will intervene. It collapse to the size of a soccer ball. <laughs> or even a soccer ball is amazing, yes. or a baseball, or, yeah. or the, even a solar system. The, the densities uh, are, are unimaginably great, unimaginable. Yes. yes. But, but let me point out that, that even that if that may seem so ridiculous that we wouldn't talk about it, or it's not worth thinking about, even the time when the universe was one second old, and the and and the universe was you know somewhat bigger than our solar system, the whole, you know, we can actually predict what that weird, incredibly hot, dense system that was ten billion degrees would be doing. With with physics, we can measure in the laboratory, and we predict the abundance of light elements precisely. One of the things that 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 Jim Peebles won the Nobel Prize for is that. We can, we can extrapolate, we can measure in the laboratory and extrapolate back to the universe as one second old and make predictions that over 10 orders of magnitude agree with observations. So we know that, that, that even that incredibly hot, dense state, which is almost unimaginable, we can test and that our ideas are correct, and they're correct. That is remarkable. It is. Um, you want to change the subject now. Um, you've written in your... Um, uh, podcast and things mm -hmm. um, about uh, the politicization of science yeah. and um, the subversion of journals like Nature and Scientific American um, and um, well talk, talk a bit about that. Well uh, look part of what's driven you and I for much of our careers is the is the is the need to have people understand the process of science is it, it involves two important things nothing is sacred. There's nothing that can't be questioned. Okay? There's no such idea that's... And, and heresy is not heresy. Those are the two characteristics that both you and I find so reprehensible about organized religion that has led us to, to, to try and help people open their minds beyond that. And so it, it's tragic to me that those two characteristics are infiltrating too much the uh, academia and the scientific community. The idea that there's some things you cannot say, that Richard Dawkins cannot say that there are two sexes, that that's heresy, and he should not be, he should be banned or he should lose awards for, be, for saying something, when in fact the whole point, the whole point of science and the whole point of education is to, is to make you uncomfortable first, and, and, to, and, and science only proceeds, I was having this conversation with my, a friend of mine who's here who drove me up here, only proceeds by a, a dialectic. Whenever I get a letter from people, from, from not scientists, from, I get letters every day, it used to be letters, now it's emails, telling me that they've been working for 20 years and they have a theory of everything, okay? You know right away it's suspect. 
because it, I mean, unfortunately, people have this picture of Einstein working alone, and he wasn't really working alone in a room developing general relativity is not the norm. Scientists, science proceeds by dialectic. I say something, you challenge it. You criticize me and try and, and, try and cut to the quick what I'm saying because that's the way the scientific community works. Because only if I can convince you, only if I can survive the test of experiment and rational debate will my ideas survive and be worth talking about. So it, it's essential that there be debate, discussion, and that no idea should be above attack or accepted without evidence. And what's, what we see happening in academia and in the scientific journals is certain things that are, 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 are not allowed to be said because they may offend some people. And, and, and we've always, I know from our discussions, you and I strongly believe that, you know, and, and our good friends Stephen Fry and Christopher Hitchens uh, said it more beautifully than I can certainly say it, that, you know, being offended is, who cares, okay? That, that, you, that science and education should make you uncomfortable. And the idea that people need safe safety that scientific environments should be safe. That is the most contemptible word. Exactly. Really. Utterly contemptible. It, exactly. Be, yeah, what does safe mean? You should... The, you, you, Not just you, science, but universities generally. Yeah, you should never feel comfortable in university. If you are, you're not working and you're not learning. Yeah. And, and so, to me, I've been attacking... I've been attacking that idea, but what scares me, and it's more in the United States, but not completely, it's in England, too, because I know I, I was in an Oxford debate on... Um, is everyone religious? Is, is everyone religious? I took the side of yes, by the way. My, some of my atheist colleagues took the other side. And my example was, was, was what you might call woke, what I call fundamentalist wokeism. That you, you get rid of religion and still people still believe in certain ideas in, in, the, in the absence of evidence and in spite of evidence and also defend them to, almost to the death that you cannot question them. And, and this notion of safety, in fact, this young woman was on my side at Oxford, and she talked about safetyism, and, and she, which we're seeing everywhere, is the idea that people should have safe spaces in university, is, is that where they won't have to hear ideas that offend them or upset them. And, and yet, and I don't know if you have colleagues, but I have many colleagues in the United States who change their curriculum for fear that something they're going to say is going to offend or upset a student because they know their job is on the line. And that's what's scary, that people can lose their, lose their jobs for saying something. In a high school in Canada, I now live in Canada, a woman got fired for talking about using the word Indian for indigenous people. She was a history teacher referring to the Indian Act of 1918. But referring to the act by its name got her fired because that using that word is so harmful that people will be traumatized by hearing it. it that, I mean, I know it upsets you as much as it does me. And, yeah. and, so, and it scares me when, when journals for, claim, and claim it as a fact that science is systemically racist or sexist. I say, show me the evidence. Let me question whether that's the case. And if you question it, that's where you're attacked That's by right. these journals. You, and cannot, you can't discuss. If you, if you try to discuss something like that, the mere act of discussing it 
is taken as that you're partisan in in one side or the other. It's it's just like Miriam was talking about. It's 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 being a non-believer in Islam. The very fact of asking a question. Yeah. If you ask a question about the Muhammad, you, you could be killed, right? And and we're not at that stage, but you can be killed academically or scholastically or or shamed. And and so it scares me when we have the institutions of science defending that non-scientific notion, and also claiming to have an answer without asking the question. It is true that in the physical sciences, at least, uh, there are more men than women. That's just true. It's also true, by the way, in the biological sciences, there are more women than men. But that isn't discussed, okay? And the presumption that, that in the physical sciences, it doesn't represent the demographics of the society, the presumption is that that's due to sexism or if they're not an equal number of minorities. The presumption is that's due to racism. And you've got to be able to say, hold on, how do you know that? And demonstrate that. And of course, and in all my experience, and I, 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 if, I would argue that of all the places in, in society, academia is probably the place with the least sexism and least racism. And, and, and so I'm offended when I hear the head of the National Institutes of Health, who's a you may know, I'm Francis Collins. Who yeah, I know. Nice guy. Yeah, yes. and I know him, and he's a nice guy. He's a friend. I think some of the stuff he says is nonsense, especially with regards to religion. But when he got up and said, the NIH is systemically racist, what he should do if he believed that is resign. Stop. If you're saying you headed an institution for 20 years that's systemically racist, how can you really believe that and still be the head of that institution? But they say it because it, it, it plays to the crowd. And, and, I don't and understand. Don't it, it, it seems to me to be cowardice on the part of the heads of institutions to kowtow to. Um, the, I mean, I, I don't see what they have to lose, and they're not going to lose. Their oh well, job. I think now that's an interesting question. Why are they coward? And I absolutely agree with you. The real, the real offenders here are the heads of institutions, university presidents, heads of scientific societies. But I do, you do see what they have to lose, right? Because um, universities now require, uh, university presidents used to be intellectual leaders, now they're fundraisers, okay? And what they're trying to do, and the way you fundraise is like anything, you advertise, you, you present yourself as, 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 uh, as everything people want you to be. And so if you stand, it's just the same as the communist scare in the 1950s and such. If you, if you um, virtue signal, if you say not only we're at, the, we're, we're at the vanguard of, of anti-racism and anti-sexism. You gain a lot. You gain in the, it sounds good. And if you violate people's rights in the process, what happens? Oh, a professor gets fired. Okay, but so if, you're, if your interest is trying to present a face, because you know you're going to be attacked. If you're the university president and you say, and you say, um, say that, you know, it, you not only is your institution not racist, but you think that people should, that it's okay to be offended. You're going to be viscerally attacked by the media and by huge numbers of people online, and, you're, and, and what, what you'll find is there are boycotts, there'll be, there'll be efforts to get people to stop donating to your university, for students to stop going to your university. But and the people you want to get donations from, billionaires... I just thought rather unlikely to go along with that. Why, why would you say that? Well, maybe I'm wrong. I, um, I, I, I will say, I don't know if I should say this in public. Um, 
No, I, I, I've been in communication in an effort to try and think what can we do to change the situation. One of the possibilities would be to con communicate with groups of billionaires who are donating money to universities and say, we won't donate to your university unless there's free speech and open inquiry. And I've actually been in communication with a philanthropic group that represents a lot of these people. And that may be one way to... I would have thought so. And that's it's only my intuition. I don't have evidence for it. But Well, but, you know, um, I think what happens is, and I, I, I had this discussion with my friend who's here, who's a very intelligent person, but watches this from afar, and the language sounds good. So people say, oh, of course it's good to, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion are good things. Why are you... Well, of course that's good, but firing people for... But they don't, they're not aware of that. What they're aware of is the verbiage that makes it sound like they're defending... That's why I, I changed, the, you know, I realized it was a friend of mine, I forget who it was, who convinced me when I was using the word woke as a pejorative, they convinced me I was really not being fair because being woke is good intention. Social justice is well-intentioned. Of course we want society to be just. So the motivation behind social justice is a good one. And so I call it fundamentalist wokeism in the same way that I, I guess I say fundamentalist Islam. I mean, I assume there are Islamic people who are just like their Christians who are kind and gentle and don't believe in stoning and don't believe in this and that. And they're like any religious people. They pick and choose what they like and they don't consider the stuff they don't like. And, and so you might say that version, those Islams are not, there's nothing inherently evil in that picture, just like there may not be anything inherently evil in many people who call themselves Christian. But fundamentalism is always evil. And fundamentalist wokeism, which is, which is this notion that, that, that people need to be removed for heresy is just as bad whether it's Islam or, or, or academia, except in Islam, it's people's lives at stake, physical lives at stake. In, in academia, it's people's careers that are at stake, but it's also science. And if you love science like you and I do, science can only proceed if there are unfettered inquiry. And if we fetter people, then you know science is going to stop. It happened in the Soviet Union with, with, with genetics. You saw it with Lysenko. There's a terrible book, um, which is called, a, a, a Russian book, which is called The Situation in Biological Science Today, a nice catchy title. And um, it's a testimony of um, one geneticist after another confessing to their sins, to their sins, to their, to their heresies. They, they, they stand up one after another and they say, um, I, have, I have offended against the... Um, uh, Lysenkoist uh, yeah. and, and, and against Comrade Stalin, and um, I, I, I denounce Mendel and I denounce Morgan, um, and and they're, then they're led off to jail. Yeah, and and you've seen that there, and and in fact, I just in my in my subsect site published a letter. You often see the scientists, and a number of them are my colleagues, Anna Krylov, who's a chemist at, at Southern California, uh, uh, this fellow who just wrote this letter. You see the scientists that are objecting most are often scientists from the former Soviet Union because they've seen it exactly. When they were young, they had to adhere to the party line in order to be part of the university. Right now, you, and you're aware of this, in university, maybe some of you aren't, in universities in the United States and in Canada, you have to um, write a, a statement about diversity, equity, and inclusion in order to get a job, in order to be considered for a faculty position in most universities or even a postdoctoral position. And, and, the, and the statement can't just be, I'm colorblind, I believe in supporting all people. That's not good enough. You have to show how you are specifically and have been your entire life anti-racist. And if you don't, you won't get a job. In Berkeley, where you spent time, 
the biology department at Berkeley, 2020, the, the 76% of the applicants were rejected. By the way, these are, their applications for faculty positions are not read first by faculty. They're read first by the diversity and equity and inclusion bureaucrats. And those people removed 76% of the applicants from the application pool that was being considered by the department on the basis of the diversity and equity statements. So you never even got to see whether they were good biologists. Is that scary? It certainly is. I'm very shocked. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know it was as bad as that. It's, 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 it's um, important and it's exact. And the people who are, uh, who are speaking out about that are former Soviet scientists because they've been, these statements are basically loyalty oaths. The same as in, in, the, in the 1950s. Faculty used to have to do an loyalty oath saying they weren't communists. And if they refused to, they were removed from their positions. And, and they would even be better if they could say, I'm not a communist, but he's a communist. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. And yes. you see that, you see yes. that, you see that here as well, and it's yes. unfortunate. Yeah. I find myself being blamed for this because uh, many, many times I'm told, well, you got rid of Christianity and, and, and this is what we get in, in, in exchange. And, and, um, well, you know, there's some, you're, you shouldn't be blamed, but that's why I meant all people are religious. And, and we both realize it. We all want to believe. I mean, we know that there's an evolutionary basis for religion. If there wasn't, it wouldn't be so ubiquitous. Yeah. It, you know, whatever it is that, that holds, whether it's power or societal conformance, there's all sorts of reasons you can see, and, and Anthony talked about some, why religion has become ubiquitous. So people can naturally want to believe certain things, and this secular religion of fundamentalist wokeism has, for part of the community, replaced it. On the right, there's equally equal nonsense. It's not just the left. And so... I think that we're not to blame for it in any way. It's just we need to recognize that, um, that, that people are, and people need to realize that the easiest person to fool is yourself, as Richard Feynman said. And that's the hardest thing for any scientist. You and your career and me and my career, I'm sure we've experienced that, where we, that we really want to believe something to be right, and probably well beyond the stage at which we should have given up our idea, we kept it, because we're human. And, what, and being a scientist trains you. By being wrong enough times, it trains you to be suspicious of, of yourself. And that's really an important part. That's what we should, should be teaching about science, is to question yourself as much as anyone else. One of the great virtues of science, met methods of science, especially in medical science, is the, the double-blind trial, which is specifically aimed at um, avoiding your self-delusion by, by this desire to... Um, to prove your own hypothesis. And that's why you have to be so much more... That's why I'm so happy I do physics and not biology, right? So I don't have to do bubble-blind experiments. Well, you do. In CERN now, when looking for the... Because we realize you can put in inherent biases, I was going to say you don't have to probe electrons and ask if they're... You don't have to worry all electrons are the same. But the way it's done now, in, in the, the Higgs was discovered, is a kind of double-blind experiment. You, the experiment. you put in false signals. Huh? And... And, and real signals to see if the experiment can detect between them because it's so complicated, you don't know. And the people who are doing it don't even know which are the ones. As they shouldn't. Yeah, yes. As they shouldn't, yes. exactly. Yeah. And so that's become the norm in experimental particle physics. But in yes. general, we don't have to worry about the biases of electrons yeah. as much as we do, but the biases yeah. of people. How long are we supposed to go on for? I haven't been told. I don't know. Uh, um, when, when are we supposed to stop? <laughs> what was that? Is that, is that my cue? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, what about that, eh? I guess that's our cue. Thank you, Richard. I, 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 can I just say, 
this was a, I've been waiting for this moment for many years with you and it was a pleasure and I thank you for taking the time to ask the questions and, and be willing to present them. It's, it's, it's always an honor to be on stage with you, but it's, it was a particular pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. It has been one of the great honors of my life as a scientist, a writer, and a human being to have been able to share my share the stage with you so many times. And uh, it's always... Um, I haven't counted them. Have you counted them? No, I haven't. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's always enjoyable and also a little terrifying because I wonder what we're going to do next. But I, I want to say at the beginning, in the con before we, we talk, that, that um, you know, I talked about Jacob Bernowski as having the best, most important, I thought, TV series I've seen. The, without a doubt, the best popular science book that was ever written, and I believe the most important and impactful science book that was ever written, uh, was The Selfish Gene. And, and it is a triumph of, the, of writing and of the human intellect, and it's changed it's changed more minds and more thinking than anyone, and I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. Um, I, I'm interested you mentioned Bronowski. I, I hugely admired his, his television series, and um, when the book of that series, The Ascent of Man, was reissued at the instigation of his daughter, uh, she asked me to write a new foreword to that book, which oh. I was delighted to do, and, and I, I reread it and was inspired by it all, all, all over again. And Yana and I actually watched it as well, watched the, um, the, the it's, TV it's, program. You can get it, I think. It's, it's well worth watching. It's black and white, um, and this wonderful intellect, this man reflecting on things. He, he doesn't use... Much in the way of his trionic, um visual It's amazing. It's, just, it's amazing. There's not all this yeah. animation. It's just this compelling man looking yes. at the TV and yes. talking. Yes, and his flashing glasses. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's really amazing. And uh, so, yeah. So I'm, I, it was really appropriate that you wrote the foreword for that. And of course, the you know, the, while while the the, the shelfless gene was was vitally important as a as a demonstration of many people how scientists could 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 properly discuss science in a way that that people would change people's minds about the world the the god delusion has had an, a, a, a a shockingly significant impact i remember when it first came out i i was i did not expect it to literally change so many people's minds and and i've gone i've been with you but also around the world and, and, that book has 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 uh, changed everything, and so another triumph. And and uh, I, I thought I'd start by talking about what triumph are you working on now? Oh, um, well, I'm working on a book called the Genetic Book of the Dead. Um, having written uh, a couple of books aimed mainly at young people, this one is aimed at grown-ups. It's aimed at the same audience as the Selfish Gene, um, and uh, it's sort of I suppose I could briefly say what the thesis is. Um, if you look at the 
external appearance of animals, especially those that insects that mimic um, leaves and sticks and, and um, things like that. Um, the perfection of mimicry that natural selection has managed to achieve is astonishing. And what I'm trying to say in the book is that that perfection is not skin deep. It, it must pervade the entire body of the animal down to every single detail and every single cell, every biochemical reaction that's going on in there must be honed to the same degree of detailed, intricate, meticulous perfection as the stick insect or the butterfly that mimics another species of butterfly. Um, it's just not obvious to us. It, it's, we can use our eyes. The naked eye is good enough to see the perfection of the external appearance. And it will take a biology of the future to d discern the same degree of perfection as you look inside. Speaking of the biology of the future, um, we were talking uh, backstage a second ago about, about the bet, which you forgot we had. And... Um, I thought it would t we, we might be worth talking a little bit about this, my clearly incorrect claim, according to you, that, uh, that life will always be identical to the life we see. So why, why don't you tell me, why don't you explain why that's ridiculous? Well, because the details of the genetic code are so arbitrary, mm -hmm. um, the, the genetic code, I think, cannot really have been put together by the same sort of process of natural selection as the rest of... Well, I think I'm, I'm right in saying that. Um, it's, it's not a very elegant code, really. It's, it's, um, and Francis Crick actually devised a much better code. I think he's probably rather annoyed when it turned out not to be the, <laughs> the one that nature actually adopted. Um, it's what they call a degenerate code, um, and it's, um, uh, that, that means that, that any one amino acid is coded for by more than one codon in, not, mm. in no particular systematic way. Um, I think it would be quite astounding if, if say, I think we had a, di a different bet, which is that you, you thought that it was highly likely you predict that there will be life found in, elsewhere in the solar system. Yeah, yes. I'm happy to bet there'll be life elsewhere in the universe, but the solar system is just too much. Um, and so I would bet against that. And the only criterion that most exobiologists would accept for uh, life being not, in, not uh, just across infection, because uh -huh. that, that's another possibility. We, we, we know that there are some meteorites that have landed on Earth that have come from Mars, there's no doubt about that. Um, and the only uh, completely watertight demonstration that it is not cross-contamination would be if it has, this, if it has a, di a different genetic code. If it has the same genetic code, then all exobiologists would accept that this is due to cross-contamination, but you wouldn't. Well, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, I'll give you my arguments now. Um, we, it's absolutely important to realize that there's contamination. So finding extant or extinct life on Mars, if it were identical, would, would, would just indicate that 
there was a common origin. Maybe the origin was Marge. Maybe the no, no, because you, because according to you, it, it could they could have independently developed the same. It could have, but it's more like we know. But I'm a physicist, so the physical. So we know there's a physical mechanism for contamination in Mars. Yes. So I'd say that's the most. If we saw identical life, I'd say it's most likely contamination, and and it would be fascinating to see whether it originated Mars or Earth first. Yes. If when looked in the ocean under the oceans of Enceladus or um, or any of the other icy moons, it's hard to imagine a physical mechanism for contamination because they're. They're kilometers of layer of ice, and there always have been. And it's hard to imagine how how any, anything um, would penetrate that or, or contaminate it. So if we saw, so the, it would be a fascinating question. If we and, and it's going to be right. There was just a, a big water plume seen on, and on, and and if we were able to penetrate that plume and find evidence of microbial life of some sort, and it had identical. Um, DNA, etc. We'd have to. Uh, it'd be an interesting question. You, you, and you say all exobiologists would assume it was contamination, and I would say let's let's ask as a physicist which is more likely. Um, and you'd have to come up with a mechanism of contamination. And unless you could come up with a mechanism of contamination that was more likely than the likelihood that it was an independent thing. So I think it would be a matter of, a, of debate. Yes, I agree. That's yeah. right. and, and, and as far as why, I mean, I mostly do it to be heretical why I think it, it'll be the same mechanism. But, but somehow chemistry and physics, a combination of enthalpy and entropy, produce the first forms of life. And, and, and I talk about it in the, in the new book. Somehow what is amazing is under certain conditions systems are driven energetically and entropically to create large, you know, maybe RNA molecules. And the question is, is there, so it's something about energy and entropy, enthalpy. There, there, so, there are degrees of similarity which we could, we could talk about. I mean, yeah. I would agree with you it, that extraterrestrial life is going to be carbon-based. Yeah, okay. I, I go that far. Um, and it will be protein-based. Because and what do you think, energy ATP? Do you think there'll be oh, any other... I, I'm not sure about that. Only, only protein molecules, I think, have the necessary um, versatility to serve as, as um, enzymes that, that, that life needs. And protein molecules are marvellous at that. I mean, they have this extraordinary capacity to coil themselves into three-dimensional forms. And the three-dimensional shape of a, of a protein is what gives it its enzymatic properties... And the three-dimensional shape comes from its two-dimensional, its one-dimensional sequence of amino acids, and that in turn comes from the DNA. Well, my bet would be that um, extraterrestrial life is car carbon-based; it's organic, in other words, uh, and protein-based. There must be some kind of genetics. It's going to be Darwinian. Mm -hmm. There must be some kind of genetics. The genetics itself will not be protein. The genetics will be something else. But beyond that. I wouldn't bet on it being nucleic acid necessarily, let alone well, DNA. I mean, even if it was DNA, I certainly wouldn't bet on it being the same genetic code. Yeah, no, I, I, I know people have tried to make a codes with different nucleic acids. Certainly the thing about RNA is that, that makes it so special is that it, it, it contains genetic information, but it's also an enzyme. It also has... En it and does so, both jobs. And so yeah. the, you'd have yeah. to find some precursor because, you know, it's chicken and egg. Yes. You know, yes. What, what was the first pro, you know, protein that was created? Well, I mean, you can't, the proteins are enzymes, but you have to have 
an enzyme to make, to yeah. make the protein. Yeah, so, so RNA would be a very, a very good um, bridge. So, so the question is, is there another kind of chemistry that would fulfill both things? And I don't know, but I'm willing to say... Every time I meet a biochemist, I try to get them to devise an alternative biochemistry. They don't really see the interest of that. They don't want to do it for some reason. Yeah, well, I've, I've been, we ran an origins meeting once uh, where people were trying to do that, and that's where I became convinced, since they weren't doing a very good job, that yes. maybe nature did do a good job, and it did it once, and it yes. worked. And so, anyway, I, I figured it's, it, it, it's a bet I'd love to lose. So, because yes. uh, finding another kind of life would be remarkable. Yes. But, but speaking of, of, of other kinds of life, and um, and losing, we were talking about the black cloud, and you. you oh you, yes, I, as you said, I, I think Fred Holmes' *The Black Cloud* is one of the greatest science fiction books ever written, despite the fact that its hero is utterly obnoxious. Yeah, um, maybe realistic in that. Well, I, almost <laughs> certainly based on Fred Hall himself. Yeah, think, yeah, because because all his other science fiction books have the same obnoxious hero, although they have a different name in, in, <laughs> in each case. Um, but apart from that, it, it, it is brilliant. It does, um, it does, as you said, have lessons about the way scientists work. I mean, there's a lovely beginning bit where the black cloud is discovered in two completely different ways, partly astronomically, just seeing, seeing it appear, yeah. and partly mathematically, um, the same method as the planet Neptune was discovered by, by noticing that other planets were in a different place from where they should be, and therefore there must be gravitational in influence from some strange foreign body. And there's a lovely passage where, um, simultaneously, in America, the astronomical observations are, are made. And at the, at the same moment in Cambridge, uh, the mathematician, Hero, deduces that there must be an object. And he sends a telegram to America saying, kindly advise if unidentified object is in so-and-so azimuth, this left ascension, so-and-so. And it says, the words of the telegram seem to swell to a gigantic height. Isn't that a wonderful piece of, yeah, yeah, of, it's wonderful. of, of drama? So that, that's one point. Another point is the way in which they work out that the black cloud must be a living thing. Um, and um, two characters, the obnoxious hero and the Russian comic relief character, um, independently think that it must be living. Um, and everybody else poo-poos the idea. And they do it by predicting and predicting and predicting. It's undone, done by predicting. If we are right, then we must make such and such an observation. Prediction is everything in science. That's another point. That, uh, in. And then I learned a lot of information theory, the idea that um, you can that information is just information and it doesn't matter what medium it goes in. There's a pianist, this is the, there's a rather male chauvinist thing, the only woman in the, in the, in the story is, is there because she's a good pianist. And she plays a Beethoven sonata to the black cloud and the black cloud loves it. And people are puzzled, how on earth can it, it hasn't got ears, how, how can it like this Beethoven sonata? It doesn't matter. The information is still there even though it's, transmitted in the form of mathematical symbols. And the black cloud says, it's too slow, can you play that 10 times faster? <laughs> and, and, and it really does enjoy it. And then finally there's the deep problems, the, the, yeah. the, 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 which, is, which really leads on to your book, Lawrence, the things we don't know, things that perhaps we cannot know. Are there problems, um, scientific problems, which the human brain is simply incapable 
of grasping because the human brain was never built by natural selection to have um, the necessary profundity. And finally, the black cloud offers to teach some physics to the scientists, and one by one, they volunteer and one by one they die of an overheated brain because they, because they, can't, yeah. they can't cope. And these are all things which, to me, show how science fiction can teach you real science. Although you, there's one bit of science that, that, that you think he got wrong because he was... Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah. Um, at one point they asked the black cloud, what was the first member of your kind? And the black cloud says... I would not accept there ever was a first member. And the astronomers then exchanged knowing glances because this was an in-joke for astronomers because at that time Fred Hoyle was the leading proponent of the steady-state theory as opposed to the Big Bang. He, he, the, the, the very phrase Big Bang was his own satirical mm-hmm. coining. Um, Uh-huh. It's being auctioned. Oh, okay. The it, painting. Oh, yes. Original. So people, oh, right. Unique of Christopher oh. Hitchens can go on your wall tonight if you bid for it on eBay. Okay, while we're talking, you bid. Yeah. <laughs> so... We won't mind if you use your phones while we're talking. We'll go on for another few minutes. Is it, is it, is it bidding by phone or what? It's yeah. been a bit of, a bit, bidding on eBay. And will the, will the auction end at, the, at when we end? Yep. Oh, okay. So the longer we talk, the, more, the higher the value will become. <laughs> okay, there we go. And you can hold it. I like that if you want. Anyway. Um, so, let's see. Oh, okay, I, I was just saying... Um, about the, um, the, the, the steady state, it's, it's one thing to believe, as Fred Hoyle did, that the universe had always existed, and, univ- and, ma- and galaxies, rather, are being spontaneously created. And there's nothing wrong with that, except it just, it's, it's not factually correct, but there was not, there's nothing in principle wrong with that. What's in principle wrong is the idea that life could have been there all along, because life is too complicated. Life has to have come about by an incremental process um, such as Darwin suggested. And so that, that was a, I think, the only f- scientific flaw in the book. Yeah, no, I, 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 the fact that it had to have come about, although I, I always liked the fact that at the same time, which, and I agree with you with that, you, you've also said when we've been together, in fact, I, it's, I think it's in The Unbelievers, a very important point, that there never was a first fish, there never was a first... Oh, um, yes. And so, it's, so why don't you talk about that? Because I think it's a really important point. Well, it's a, it's a completely different point. But, but yeah, it but is, it but sounds, it's It sounds the same. Yeah. Right? Okay. Um, it, it, it's, it, it sounds vaguely paradoxical, although it isn't, that um, we are all descended from a fish, but um, every one of the ancestors that link us to that fish belong to the same species as its parents and his children. Mm-hmm. And so as you go back, you couldn't possibly, if, you, if you'd lined up all the intermediates between a human and a fish and had them all per, in, per, standing in a gigantic long parade and you walked along this huge long parade, you, wouldn't not, you would not detect the change as you walked along because the change would be too slight in each generation. And yet 
by the time you got back to the Devonian, um, you, would, you would find that, that it had become a fish. So that it, it's, that's a, the, it's, it's like a cinema film. That, that, yeah, uh, and that's, very, very of course, subtle. a great challenge. That's why evolution appears so non-intuitive, because we just can't picture those, that kind of a line that long. Even if, even a, in, if you wrote a tale and called it the ancestor's tale, it would be hard. Yeah. It would yes. be hard. Um, the, uh, l let me ask you one question about Hoyle, and then, I, then, then I'm going to let you ask me a question. But, um, because given what I said about you and, you, and the importance of n n not just the significance of the selfish gene, but the, the, legitim the legitimizing science writing, which was a, which has served for many people, including myself, to motivate people like myself to write because of the example of how useful the selfish gene was. Hoyle was a science fiction writer and a popularizer. And even though he, he didn't uh, buy the Big Bang, he, he actually did the work, some of the key scientific work that helped demonstrate the Big Bang was true and, and, and didn't share the Nobel Prize for that. And, and do you think it was because he was, he was a popularizer or maybe because he was just not likable or what? Which was uh, I, I've always wondered that. Um, it, he, you, he, I mean, he, he did this seminal work on the formation of the elements. On oh, the light in, elements, in, yeah. Um, and um, the colleagues that um, he worked with or associated with got the Nobel Prize and he didn't. Um, he, he was an abrasive character, but that shouldn't have mattered. Yeah. Um, he ventured into other fields such as, well, evolution. He talked nonsense when he ventured yeah. into evolution. Um, but I, I wouldn't like to speculate as to, as to what went on in the prize givers' minds. Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to know. Yeah. There's another one, George Gamma was another one who also did seminal work, literally predicting many things, including the yes. cosmic background, but yes. again was a, a popularizer and, and, many, and a joker. And uh, it's hard to know. It's really, it's nice, but that's one of the reasons why, why the selfish gene is so important, because um, you're a serious person. And, 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 and the selfish gene is a, a book of scholarship as well as something for the public that has an impact. And I think that makes, so, we've talked in the last time we were there that science writing is a form of literature that is too rarely appreciated as a form of literature. And it should be. And yes, I think it's kind of what I'm getting at. But I'm starting a new podcast, which is called "The Poetry of Reality," meaning science is the poetry of reality. And um, it's kind of I'm saying the same thing as you you just said that, that, that science ought to be a vehicle for great literature. Yes, it'll be great. We'll be competing mm -hmm. podcasters, but I promise to come on. Um, and, and well, I want to get, ask your advice on how to, how to do Oh, yeah, that. well, we'll talk about it. Good. And I, 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 that, that would be an honor. You said backstage that when I was talking, there were one or two things that, you, that came to your mind. You oh, yes. Um, let me think. What was it? Um, oh, well, one of the things was a thing about time mm -hmm. being an illusion. Um, Fred Hoyle wrote a book called um, Man in the Universe, and one of the, it's a collection of essays, and one of the essays is about time, the, sorry, the, the subjective present, he calls it, as an illusion. And he said that to a physicist, there's no sense in which, the, in which time moves from the past to the future, step by step by step by step. It's just all there. It's all just all laid out. Um, the whole stretch is there mm. at, at the time. And, and he, 
actually puzzles himself about what it is that gives this strong illusion of time moving, time like an ever-rolling stream, as the hymn says. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that. Well, you know, it's interesting, he's prescient. I, because I, when he thought that, I think he was ahead of his time, in, in, in a, as he often was, in a variety of ways. Because there is this dichotomy. <coughs> Physics generally is done by creating what's called a time slice, time A, and defining variables there, and then using the laws of physics to propagate them forward. That's how quantum mechanics is done. And quantum mechanics is a deterministic theory, although most people don't realize the same. It's always some time slice. And, but, the, but the problem is that when you think about gravity, the variables of gravity are space and time. And therefore, uh, if you wanted to define a, a quantum mechanical wave function of sp that, whose variables are space and time, it would, be, it would have a value at every point in space, but also every point in time. And therefore, it would be defined from... It, it, that wave function of the universe would have all of time from the beginning of the universe to the end embedded in it, in which case the past and future would not be any different than you, the present. You just said that quantum mechanics is a deterministic theory. It is, yeah. Um, so people who say something like Heisenberg's indeterminate principle cannot be used to sanctify free will. That, that, that's, that follows from what you oh, just said. Oh, absolutely. Yes, I, okay. the, yeah, the physics is, is determined. So Schrodinger's equation is a second-order differential equation. What's, it defines exactly the wave function. Now, our measurements of the wave function are probabilistic, but the underlying physical quantity is determined with 100% accuracy by the... You know, again, completely. And, but that's what makes the wave function of the universe so weird, and people have thought about it. We don't have an end. I mean... It's an open question, but it's one of the reasons people, some people would say time is an illusion because um, of this fact that if the world is quantum mechanical and if gravity is quantum mechanical and there's a wave function that defines, describes the universe, in some sense, all of time would already be determined by, within the context of that wave function. And how can you propagate it forward in time if time is, 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 is already determined? All of these questions are problems, and it's one of the many many problems having to do with trying to understand a quantum theory of gravity that we don't have the answer to. But, to, to, but, but what is clear, and I, I guess the point I tried to make, is that even if this abstract, deep question it, it leads us to some new insights into a, into, a, into a theory of gravity and a theory of space and time, the, what really matters is how, the, pre, how the, what the world we see arises, a world in which time really does appear to have meaning, and, 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 and the past is different from the future. Well, you seem to be suggesting that um, time travel was not absolutely ruled out, and it made me immediately think of the, the famous killing your grandmother paradox. You don't just have to kill your grandmother. I mean, anything you do in the past. Mm -hmm. I, I've, I've illustrated it by, by the hypothetical example of if a particular dinosaur... Had, had sneezed at a particular moment, yeah. none of us would be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or, the, you know, the butterfly effect, that kind of thing. There is a theory, uh, there's one way around this in physics, and it, it's, uh, and it, it involves what's called a closed time-like curve. And in Star Trek, I think it's called a causality loop. But it would get around that, which is that, basically, if you go back in time, you're doomed to do exactly the same thing you did before. So that, the, so that systems can travel in time and do a circle. But nothing. But basically, somehow. So you want to shoot Hitler, but somehow the laws of physics will ensure you trip, 
and you, you cannot change things. And so it's a, it's a mathematical way around doing it. It's and too contrived, it seems to it me. It is very it, contrived, it, yeah. and that's one of the reasons why time travel appears so um, difficult uh, to, to, to accept. And we, we, we even have, we even could, we can come close to proving it's impossible. If you wanted to have time travel, you'd have to have a very, very special kind of energy. We actually, I can create, I have a time machine right here, okay? Um, it, it's a wormhole. You can't see it, but it's a wormhole. It's a shortcut through space, the kind that Jody Foster took in contact, in Carl Sagan's book, Contact. If a, if a stable wormhole existed, it's a time machine. And it's really simple to understand. So a wormhole is a, a shortcut through a curved space. So instead of going all the way around space, it's like going through a, a mountain. Instead of going all the way up, you go a tunnel, and it's much shorter to go through. So that's what a wormhole is. But you see, if a wormhole is connecting two points in space and one of the ends of the wormhole is moving very fast, then clocks at that end of the wormhole are doing slowly. So, so uh, in five years, as observed by an observer at this end of the wormhole, if that, observe, if that end of the wormhole is moving very fast, it may just be a week for an observer moving at that end of the wormhole. But then you see, if you went through the wormhole, you'd come out five years earlier, up to, except for a week. And then you take a spaceship back to where you began and you come back before you left. So w stable wormholes are time machines. And interesting, Kip Thorne and others showed that the problem is if normal matter and energy is, have all, uh, is all you have, we can show that the mouth of wormholes will collapse to form black holes before you could ever go through them. There's no such thing as a traversal wormhole. So you might say time machines are impossible. But if you fill the wormhole up with negative energy, then the wormhole would be stable. So the question is, can you create negative energy? And that's the, that's the current no, unknown. We don't, there's no negative energy things we've ever been able to create in the laboratory. And people have even written papers showing up to a certain point, you can't create negative energy in the laboratory. But there's always a loophole. And so until we get those loopholes, until we have a theory of quantum gravity, worm, you know, time travel would remain at least possible. But I'm more willing to bet that time travel is impossible than I am that, li that all life is always made of DNA. I think, I think ultimately we'll find out the laws of physics preclude creating a configuration that could do that, but, but I don't know. You, you, you had a question backstage about, about particles and gravity. Oh, uh, yes, um, I don't really understand the general theory of relativity, but I kind of partly do. What I don't understand is what on earth gravity has to do with particles. Why do you have to... Gravity, we're talking about something in which huge bodies are in... in and what, particles are tiny things. What have they got to do with gravity? <laughs> Gravitons. Well, it's, they, they, what they have to do with gravity is the same thing that the tiny particles have to do uh, with, with an electric field. I mean, you've, al you've always... Um, you, you've probably d rubbed a balloon on a, on a wall and, and, or, or, felt, or felt your hair yeah. go up. That's because a static electric field produces a force. Yes. But we know that that force is produced by, ultimately, a coherent configuration of many particles. The electric field is a coherent configuration of many photons, of many individual quanta. And, 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 and we can describe that. You need many, many, in order for it to be classical, so you and I can see it, you have to have huge numbers of photons in the same state. And that creates this electric field. Okay. The photons are also responsible for... So when, for when Jupiter exerts an, an, a gravitational influence on... on, 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 on Earth, yeah. Are there little particles whizzing between 
do for general the, relativity? Uh, the if, if gravity is a quantum theory, then, in fact, you can show it's due to the exchange of particles, just like electromagnetism is due to the exchange of photons. Those particles are, are called gravitons. And it's really kind of interesting, because it's one of the... Richard Feynman was the first person, to, I think, to show this. I'm not sure. But photons have a very particular characteristic. They happen to have spin one. It doesn't really matter what it is. But if you exchange a spin one particle, then like charges will repel. So we know that gravity can't be the same as electromagnetism because like charges attract. Matter attracts matter. Mm -hmm. There's only two possibilities. Exchange of a spin two particle or exchange of a spin zero particle. But if you can show that if you exchange a spin two particle, then you can write down a theory that makes it look like that exchange is the curvature of space. And so, so we, we've never detected a graviton, but if gravity, if classical gravity, if Jupiter is interacting with us, it's exchanging a huge number of, of gravitons with us. Exchanging? You mean that passing between? Or, or, yeah, and or, that's, that's why gravity occurs at the speed of light. If the sun disappeared, literally disappeared, I mean, all the mass in the sun disappeared now, for eight minutes, we'd continue to go around the sun. Yeah, I understand that. Yes, and understand and that. so it's because of it's because of the exchange of particles. But we have never detected a graviton. And some people would say gravity is ultimately not a quantum mechanical theory because we haven't been able to invent one. A, a colleague, Gerard Tuft, who won the Nobel Prize, would, might say that. And I'm very pleased to say that we, a colleague of mine who did win the Nobel Prize, Frank Wilczek, and I actually wrote down, showed that if we could detect gravitational waves which are the classical version, just like, just like um, radio waves are the classical version of photons. That yeah. You put enough of them yeah. and you can detect a radio signal. If they're all in the same state, it's enough for you to detect the radio signal. Gravitational waves are the classical version. Well, they have been detected. At, but they're the classical version. Yes. The question is, is there a quantum version? And what we showed is if you could detect them from the beginning of time, from inflation, we could prove that, that, that gravitons exist. So I don't, it's still an open question. And so if you don't like it, you might be right. I, I wouldn't presume to like it or not like it. I, well, I, that's, I, that's good. That's the right answer, because whether you like it or not doesn't matter. Um, how's, is there, how's the bidding going? Are we allowed to bid? I, 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 uh, oh, yes. Okay. And how, yes, Richard, can Richard bid on this? Well, uh, yeah, so... so um, so why don't you write down a number, and I'll give it to, uh, I don't know where John is. But this is a secret auction. We don't yeah, know how yeah. I mean, Richard, Richard would like to bid on it. No, and no, I'd no, like to on, bid I... on it, too. I'd like to bid one dollar less than Richard bids. <laughs> <laughs> Just to show support, at least. <laughs> John, can, Rich, if no, I no, gave no, you I a, can, can Richard bid on the, on the, on the, on the painting? And I assume he wants to. Do you want to do it privately? No, or? I don't. What's the bid at? Do you know? We don't. We're not told, are we? What was that? Four hundred and ten dollars. Pounds. Pounds. Well, same thing. Um, <laughs> as for a cosmologist, it's really the same thing. Um, uh, so anyway, it's four hundred ten pounds. Do you want to do a private bid, or do you want to announce what you're willing to bid? Richard, it's up to you. The auction's finished, okay. Oh, the auction is finished? You didn't give Richard a chance to bid. Okay, well, it's 8 o'clock, which means I think that we are finished, too. We're finished. So thank you very much, Richard, and thank you all. Thank you.
I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.